I'm going to do that next week. <laughs> yeah. Romans chapter 8. Uh, listen, um, this is the last message in our series. Um, and uh, I'm just going to step on the gas pedal right now. If you've looked at your notes, how many people have looked at the notes in the bulletin? And how many of you looked at the notes and turned to someone beside you and went, 10 points. He's got 10 points. How many people did that? Yeah, you didn't do that. You texted me this morning and went, wow, that's, that's all Terry did. So um, gas pedal, ready? Uh, we're going to go right away. So the gospel is this. We've been hearing it week after week. Um, there is a God and everyone knows it. Uh, there's a sense of uh, longing in our hearts to have this filled. And uh, humanity uh, spend their lives, people spend their lives trying to fill that God longing in so many different ways. Uh, the dilemma that we have, though, is that the God longing can't be filled apart from God himself. Uh, but we are separated from God as a result of our sins. There exists this great gulf, this separation between us and him. And it's one that uh, we cannot overcome on our own. And so we face the penalty of that sin and that separation, which is eternal death, eternal separation from our God forever. And the only solution, the only possible solution for us to bridge that gap is Jesus Christ. Uh, his death, his burial, his resurrection power applied to our lives, his blood shed to cleanse us of our sins, his substitution of his perfect life for our sinful life is the only means by which we could ever come into a relationship with our God. And we have only to do one thing to gain this. We looked at it last week. It is to believe one word, just believe that we would confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. That is the criteria by which we must be, according to the scriptures, saved. Romans 10, 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord in this way, it was saved, they'll be saved. And having believed and done what the scriptures tell us we need to do, we can receive life. The eternal benefit that God offers to us is life in himself. That is the gospel. All five parts of it, uh, one part missing, we don't have the gospel and we want to have all parts of what God is offering uh, to us today. And as we continue to mind down now on this matter of life, what exactly is the eternal benefit? Two key verses come into my mind. The first is this from Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. We've looked at that already. That's the kind of the bad news of the good news. And then um, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the, the great news of the good news. And Jesus said this further in John 10, 10, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. Eternal life forever and an abundant life here and now. You up for that? Amen. You want that in your life? Because I sure want that in my life. And it comes uh, through faith in Jesus Christ. That is uh, the gospel. And so we want to look this morning at the eternal benefit uh, it is this, to receive life in Jesus Christ. And I'm going to spend uh, the time that we have left kind of working through one chapter of Scripture, uh, Romans chapter 8. And uh, in Romans chapter 8, I discovered um, I had actually only picked out two verses. This is what happens when you're a preacher. I picked out two verses to preach this morning from Romans chapter 8. 
But then you always want to study verses in their context. And so I looked at the verse before it and the verse after it and a couple more verses before it. And those led to the verses after it and more verses after it. And 39 verses later, the whole of chapter 8, here we are uh, this morning. And um, I thought it was interesting this. Mike referred to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, not by name, but when he preached earlier in the series... Um, Lloyd-Jones spent quite a number of years, actually, I think more than maybe even Mike, um, I think it was around 13 years in the book of Romans. But get this, I'm going to preach Romans chapter 8 in one sermon this morning. Anybody have any idea how how many sermons Lloyd-Jones had in Romans 8? Just in Romans 8. You said 39? 500's a lot. (laughs) Way over. Price is right. You get nothing. If you go (laughs) over the retail price, nothing. 110 over 82, 82 messages in the 39 verses of Romans chapter 8. I'm going to do it in one. James Montgomery Boyce uh, said this. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce said, It is the greatest chapter in the Bible. J.I. Packer declared, As Romans is the high peak of the Bible, Romans is the high peak of the Bible, Romans 8 is the high peak of Romans. And so this is the peak of the peak of the most important chapters in all of God's word. And our purpose this morning is not to study it, obviously, with the depth that Lloyd-Jones did, not even the depth it certainly deserves, but uh, really to survey this book with this in mind. What are the benefits of the gospel? What does it mean, in other words, to have life in him? When we are saved, when we have his salvation, what is that looking like in each of our lives? That's what we're going to look at, the eternal benefit, what life in Christ means to us. Um, Ten of them. I should probably get started. Number one, a freedom instead of I'm ashamed and feel the weight of my sin. Not all all of these ten things are going to be the thing that kind of led you to Christ. There's a couple of these ten that spoke particularly to me uh, in the days leading up to um, uh, my faith in Christ being expressed before the Lord. Uh, So not all of them are going to hit the mark for you uh, right away. Eventually they will. But many will have this leading up to their uh, time of uh, accepting the Lord. That they have a sense of their own sinfulness. And certainly we would understand this, that every person who accepts faith in Christ must actually come to this very point of knowing that they are a sinner. There's no one coming to Jesus who does not uh, fully realize the reality of Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. A part gospel is not the gospel, and sin is our dilemma. That is the problem that needs to be solved. There may be circumstances in your life that brought you close to considering Christ, but when you get to the point of the cross, you have to realize that it's not about your cancer, it's not about your divorce, it's not about your financial situation, it's not about the crisis that brought you to the point. When you get to the cross, you realize the problem is me, it's my sin. That separated me from God. Everyone has to get to that place. Everyone needs to come to this. If they're going to be saved by Jesus. Now notice the first four verses. Paul writes there's therefore now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. Which by extrapolation we understand. That there is condemnation for those who are not in Christ Jesus. Got it? If it says this one thing in the affirmative, we understand that the opposite, 
Well, it's certainly true. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Note first of all this whole chapter is written to believers. So he's writing to us. The hope is though that in the preaching of God's word. If there are some here today who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. You're going to make that decision here And this morning, and so it's clear here that before Christ we're under condemnation. It defines the dilemma that we're in. The sin separates us from God. His wrath and judgment on sin leads to our final and ultimate and eternal death. Before we come to Christ, we bear the guilt of our sin, the shame of our sin. We stand in fear of the judgment of God, rightly so, All of this before Christ. But in Christ, notice, we have freedom. We've been freed of all of these things. So that there is therefore now no condemnation. I mean, I just wrote this in my margin beside these verses. I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven. I could hardly think of any words that are greater that we could speak before the Lord. I'm forgiven. I'm free of the weight and burden of my sin, guilt, fear, and shame chased away, borne by Jesus on the cross. And whatever sins we have committed that keep us enslaved, we find freedom in Christ. And could we agree right now, that's a benefit. Amen? That's a benefit. What a great place to start. Number two, peace. Instead of, my life's a mess. My life's a mess. Now, these next two benefits, I said there were two that kind of spoke into my own situation, and these next two are, are the two that really kind of hit me and hit my story because my life really was a mess. Mom and dad are sitting right here, and I, I was not raised in a believing family. I was raised in a good moral home, but it wasn't until we moved from Quebec and moved here to the province of Ontario that we heard the gospel. It was through a series of very difficult situations we would describe as a family at that time. Our life was a mess, but I want to talk more particularly about me and the mess that I found myself in as a 13, 14-year-old living in Ontario. I, in fact, blame my parents for all of the difficulties that were in my life at that time, right? Take responsibility. It was all your decisions. And yet God used all of that to bring me to faith in Christ. I'm kidding about that. But God used those very challenging circumstances. We had no money. Uh, We were sharing groceries. My cousin's here as well. And my aunt and uncle lived next door to us. And we didn't have enough money for groceries for two families. So we bought groceries for one family. We ate together night after night. First business failed. The reason why we came to Ontario, there was no money. Dad worked night and day, two different jobs to try and pay the bills. Randy's dad worked night and day to try and pay the bills and put groceries on the table for these two families. We had no money. I had been whisked out of Quebec, the place I loved, to live in exile in Ontario, still here. I tell people that. It's still the most painful part of my story that I'm still here. And... Um, But seriously, friends and family left behind. I hated my school situation. It was so much different than what I had been in 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 Quebec. And there was nothing about it that was great. Nothing. And God used those. My life was a mess. And God used the messiness of that situation to draw me to a place where I was open to hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
There needs to be a crisis. There needs to be turmoil in your life. If everything's great and wonderful, you're not likely to consider Jesus. You think you have it all going on. But it's the crisis that draws us to the place where we're willing to be open to hear what God has to say to us. And in verses 5 through 8, we see a contrast between two ways of thinking. What occupies our minds? What thoughts are steering our life course? Take a look at these. Uh, 5 through 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. That's the two sides of one line. If the line is salvation, if the cross is the dividing point, on on one side of that line, I'm still thinking according to the flesh. My mind is set on the things of this world. All of the messiness and the anxiety that was in my life as a young teen, I mean, that was one side of the line. I was thinking according to the flesh. When I crossed the line uh, uh, by the cross of Christ and, and came into a relationship with him, I started thinking along the lines of the Spirit. Let's continue on with these verses. To set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so what occupies your minds? What's steering your life? What decisions are you making that's charting the course for you? The things of the Spirit, they bring life and peace, verse 6. Or can you only think about what pleases you and what makes your life happier or better? And the problem is that the more the crisis intensifies for you, the more life becomes messy, the more you try to take the reins and control the situation and make the decisions and turn all the focus on yourself. How can I make my life better? And you try to manipulate the whole thing and it only results in more messiness and more of a disaster in your life. It's never going to lead you to the very thing that verse, says, verse 6 says here we're going after, which is life and peace. I don't want the turmoil in my life any longer. In fact, verse 7 says that when we live in that kind of life, it isn't just that my life is bad or that it's hard or it's hostility towards God, the verse says. To kind, of, to, to kind of just like spurn him and turn our back on him and say, I don't need you, is to, is to live in open hostility toward God. And really what we need to do is shift the focus off of ourselves into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And then you get uh, this peace that calms the turmoil. And verse 8 says that this is what pleases God. We want to please him. There's obviously a great... A benefit in that. And then this, number three, God in you instead of I just feel so empty inside. This is the second half of my story. So as a 13, 14 year old, my life is basically tanking. Again, business was bad uh, for my dad and, and um, dad began drinking. Ultimatums were being spoken in our home. Uh, things were really difficult. Mom, uh, Seeing how much our life was in turmoil, then began to seek out uh, the counsel of someone who could explain the gospel to her. And the gospel was explained in the course of things. She turned her life over to Jesus Christ. And, and I, too, um, 
was exposed to the gospel, although it took me some time to actually believe the message and understand it for myself. I had been going to the church somewhat and listening to the gospel being preached, but it, it wasn't quite registering yet. It still just thing like, seemed like a good religious thing to do, and I was a pretty religious kind of guy. Now, this is all taking place in my early teen years, grade 8 and grade 9, and we understand that this is such a critical time in the life of our kids, this class that we're offering. Parents, if you feel kind of out of your element a little bit in, t- in parenting teens, you need to be there on Tuesday nights. This is why we put so much effort into our youth ministry, why we have a full-time pastor working with our young people, because we understand that some of the most critical life decisions are made in these very years. This is when I came to faith in Jesus Christ and and the course of life for your children who are 12, 13, 14, 15 years old. Listen, so important, and yet sometimes they're making it apart from understanding the word of God. And we need to be praying for our kids and investing in the teaching of God's word. It was certainly true for me. Verses 9 through 11, we see the emptiness of our life lived in the flesh and this is what i came to understand you however are not in the flesh but in the spirit if in fact the spirit of god dwells in you anyone who does not have the spirit of christ does not belong to him but if christ is in you though the body is dead because of sin the spirit is life because of righteousness if the spirit of him who raised jesus from the dead dwells in you he who raised christ jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you now, these are important verses for understanding the emptiness of our life in the flesh Notice he says, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, Paul's making no assumptions that everybody who's hearing his message is actually saved. I would make the same statement. Uh, These things are true of you if indeed you're saved. These things, these benefits, you should be seeing in your life. And if you're not seeing them, uh, maybe you're not saved. And I would have you come to Christ today. We see in verse 10, the Spirit is life. Verse 11, he gives life through his Spirit who dwells in you and God's Spirit can only dwell in you if you're saved, if you respond to the message of the gospel. For me, I sat in a youth group coffee house. This is why youth ministry is so important to me. It was a coffee house, there was some music, some skits. And then a speaker got up there, a Pentecostal pastor named Bob, who was a YFC worker, Youth for Christ worker in our town. And he preached the gospel that night. And what I remember so specifically, and this speaks to the point, was that he said, Jesus Christ wants to come and fill the void that's in your life. Now that was the thing that hit me. For the woman at the well, it was living water. For Nicodemus, it was about being born again. Jesus always has his touch point in each one of our lives. The gospel is the same for all of us, but the touch point, the thing that hits us right where we live right right where our struggle and our crisis is that that might be different for each one of us for me the crisis the personal crisis was i just felt empty inside and i heard that night it just made sense for the first time as god's holy spirit came upon me it just made sense the holy spirit jesus christ was the only one who could fill that And I remember in the darkness of that room raising my hand at his appeal and saying, I want that. And feeling, 
feeling, my apologies to all the Baptists and brethren in the room, feeling the Holy Spirit come on me and fill me. And I've been walking with Jesus for more than 30 years now. And I've never felt that emptiness again. Because I have him and he's mine. The scriptures say he indwells me. He lives inside me. My body is the temple, the dwelling place of God's Holy Spirit. And that's true for anyone here who's a true follower of Jesus Christ. You have him. He indwells you. It's God in you instead of I just feel so empty inside. And you can try to fill your life with all kinds of things. You can try sex if you want. You can try power and achievements and influence and seeking to get people to affirm you. You can try possessions and money and the accumulation of things. Try it all if you want. But Solomon already did. And his word in various translations for that pursuit, meaningless, futile, vanity, emptiness. Why try it? Turn your life over to Christ and see him fill you. Number four, belonging instead of I'm so alone in the world. This is a big problem today. A lack of acceptance is why young urban teens join gangs. It's why some choose a gay lifestyle because they see it as the only perceived option for finding belonging in this world. It's why suicide is a leading cause of death amongst young people because they can't find a place where they fit. This is a big problem, belonging, our identity. The need we have to belong is so strong that people will choose poorly and know they've chosen poorly just to fulfill this sense of belonging in their lives. And Jesus offers instead to adopt us as his own sons and daughters, settling the issue forever in our lives. This is what we see in verses 12 through 17. So then, brothers, we're debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will, there's the word again, live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Here's where we get to it. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear... But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We have this sense of belonging because Christ has adopted us into his family and made us full heirs as his sons and daughters. No one ever needs to be alone again. It's a stunning offer that God makes to us, to his family, to inherit all the riches of glory, of eternity, of his kingdom. Do you have that sense of identity and belonging in Christ? It's a, it's a benefit of life in him, of salvation. How about this one? Hope in every circumstance. So many people ask the question, why is this happening? I heard it again only weeks ago. Someone who was in a tragic circumstance 
not that old and facing a difficult diagnosis and asking the question, throwing their hands in the air. I just can't believe in a God who would allow this to happen. Almost as if they're the only person in the world to have ever suffered from such a thing. The tragic circumstances of life were never God's intent for us. He created a perfect world for us, did he not? Created a perfect world. Just go live here. It's going to be awesome and amazing. And you and I are going to see each other every day. And we're going to hang out together. And, it's, and you're never going to have any needs whatsoever. We kind of messed that up, didn't we? And so the tragic circumstances of life, let's just say, they were not God's intent. Death was never God's intent for us. All the suffering we go through, not God's intent. It's not the way he set things up. We chose this for ourselves. Let's, let's just uh, take responsibility right now for that. The mess of the world today, I don't need to ask the why question. I don't need to wonder about why God isn't intervening or why God isn't doing something about it. He is doing something about it through me and you. He's bringing about his redemptive plan. We need not worry about that. But let's take responsibility for the mess our world is in. It's our fault. It's not the Lord's fault. We understand that we live in a world, verse 22 says, that's groaning under the burden of sin, painful divorces and tragic deaths and the horrors of war and financial insecurity and the sad reality of cancer all speak to a world that was never meant to cope with sin and its effects. But God makes a way for us through all of these things and gives us hope so that we don't even need to ask the why question. We understand this is to increase our faith. This is to build our endurance. And ultimately, every trial we would ever go through, every difficulty we'd ever face, every temptation that comes our way is ultimately for this purpose alone, to bring glory to Jesus Christ. Through how we live our lives, the decisions we make, how we conduct ourselves, the attitudes that we have, will we as the followers of Christ distinguish ourselves in the midst of these trials so that God gets the greater glory for these things. These are his purposes. And so we see, where do we leave off here? This is a long message. Verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this... Is this underlined in your Bibles? Verse 18. I'm not even done reading it. And I'm like, underline this verse. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I'll do it again. And uh, you consider a response of some kind. All right. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Amen. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that's seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Or not so much in my case. I'm not a patient person. But this waiting, this hope, this longing that we have for something that is beyond this particular life. It's in this hope that we are saved. And I would just ask you, do you have this hope? 
Is this in you as you long for Christ to carry you out of the sufferings of this age? Now, in these same verses, we see our sixth point here, future glory instead of eternal death. This is another great benefit that we have something we're looking forward to. These first speak to this. Notice uh, verse 18, that it's a glory future to be revealed, not yet revealed. Sometimes we get to see glimpses of God's glory and praise God for that. But listen, we're going to get to see God's glory in greater measure in eternity. Verse 23, notice we're waiting for the redemption of our bodies. Pretty obvious to me that that's a future thing. You know, I'm looking forward to the redemption of this body. It's okay, you can laugh, I do. (laughs) This body ain't perfect, 48 years old. It's getting less perfect every day. And um, I understand that. I'm waiting for the redemption of my body. In verse 25, notice we're waiting for this. There's something more coming for us beyond this life. And that's a benefit that's hard to describe since it's not yet arrived. We anticipate it, we wait for it. And I've been at the bedside of people who were just waiting for eternity to start whose life was ebbing away from them, whose body was failing, but whose eyes were lit up and and in earnest anticipation of when they closed their eyes for the last time and their eyes opened again, that what they would see is the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh my. day that will be amen a future glory that he has for us i love what the hymn says that we sang just last week there is no fear in death this is the power of christ in me from life's first cry to final breath jesus commands my destiny I know that we can have that kind of confidence future glory instead of eternal death if you fear dying If you have a fear of death, then you're not fully realizing the benefit that Christ is offering to us in salvation. If you have no idea where you're going when you die, then you need to settle that issue right now. It was an evangelism program back in the 70s called Evangelism Explosion. I don't even know if it's still going today, but it was based on the premise of one thing. You would go up to people who were total strangers and you would ask them a question. If you were to die tonight, where would you go? And the whole thing was meant to provoke in people some thought about whether or not they truly had a relationship with God, whether they were ready to die or fearful of that. And we can have confidence as the followers of Jesus Christ Uh, That we should have no fear of death, but the matter is settled for us. And if the matter is not settled for you, you, if you have no idea how to answer that question, if you were to die tonight, on the basis of what do you think Jesus would allow you to enter into heaven? You need to have that question settled. Future glory, number seven, confidence in prayer instead of where's God anyway. It's always funny to me that people who otherwise have no relationship with God, will pray to him in crises. Is this funny to you too? Obviously, you just kind of snickered. Uh, Exhibit number one, 9-11. 
and how our nation and the United States turned to prayer in the wake of 9-11 and the horrors of what we saw. The crisis compelled us to our knees and compelled people to pray and call out to God. But within the weeks and months that passed as their own personal strength and resiliency came back to them and their resolve to be staunch Americans and to battle the enemies on their own fields, God was forgotten, wasn't he? The prayers were no longer necessary. The situation no longer seemed as as desperate to them. And so, I'm not sure why people expect their prayers to be answered when they're in that kind of a spot, knowing that they really have no relationship with him. You see, as the followers of Christ, the benefit for us is that we can have confidence in prayer. Take a look at verses 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the Word of God. Now notice, this is intercession for the saints. This is the Holy Spirit working in the saints' life, the believer's life, the Christ follower's life. The Spirit working to intercede for us in our prayer life. So salvation in Christ assures us as his followers that God's spirit is interceding for us in a way that transcends any prayer that we could ever utter ourselves. And where is God when you pray your desperate prayers? The reality is as a Christ follower, he's right there listening, inclining his ear towards us as his followers, as his children. But if you're not a follower of Christ, and in the crisis, you're just calling out for him to rescue you from your situation, the only prayer, listen now, the only prayer that he's hearing from you is this one. I need you, Lord, to forgive my sins and to bring me into a relationship with yourself. It's not about the immediate rescue out of the current situation. It's about the reality of that eternal relationship with God that you do not yet have. In other words, the first prayer that Jesus will hear from you is a prayer of repentance for sin and of acceptance of him as your Savior and your Lord. Pray that prayer. Get into a relationship with him. And the Holy Spirit then sets up shop in your life, interceding for you constantly in prayer before the Father. And that's the benefit of being a follower of Jesus Christ. How you doing? That's seven. How many more we got to go? Three, right? You doing okay? All right. Number eight. No one's going to go home saying the message lacks substance today. Security instead of I've no idea where I stand with God. I'd say that most people have no idea where they stand with God. I've already confessed this before, but one of the things that causes me to actually turn TV news off is if they do those streeter interviews. I've talked about this before. You know, they report on the Middle East crisis. Middle East crisis, by the way, is a 4,000-year-old crisis. 4,000 years old, goes all the way back to Abraham's sons. All right, that's, that's the problem. Four millennia. But they're going to put a microphone in front of a guy on Dunlop Street and get the solution to that, right? 
That's why I turned the TV off. <laughs> so most people have no idea where they stand with God. If we did a streeter interview down on Dunlop Street today, and we asked some people, where do you stand with God? Uh, most people would be honest enough, I believe, to say, I, I, I really have no idea where I stand with God. I, I don't know. Now, the majority of Canadians, if you believe StatsCan or, or, or any of the various pollsters, uh, most Canadians would say that they believe in God. More than 80% of Canadians would say they believe that there is a God. But then when pressed about a relationship with him and where do you stand with him, again, most Canadians, a vast majority would say, well, I, don't, I don't really know. And they kind of make something up. And here's how I think I get into a relationship with God. Or, or here's what I do. And it's all based on me. And Well, there's no security in that. People are guessing and speculating about the whole thing. Most people have no idea if they're really good with him or not. Now, check out verses 28 through 30 again i'm just thinking you should have these verses underlined certainly verse 28 and we know that for those who love god all things work together for good for those who are the called according to his purpose for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Now, I don't know. If you can't have security on the basis of those verses, you will never get it. The thing that God starts in you, he's going to finish. If God, if God uh, predestined you to salvation, then God's going to do all the things in between that are going to bring you to the point where having called you to salvation, he's going to glorify you in himself. And there's nothing that you can do to get it in the first place or keep it along the way. We are saved by Jesus Christ. We are kept saved by Jesus Christ. Uh, no one's going to change that, not even you. If you're a follower of Christ, uh, you can have security in that very thing. Those who love God find that all things work together for good. God's going to bring everything to completion in their lives. They just know they're saved and nothing's going to change that. And it doesn't mean that everything's going to go. By the way, all things working together for good, we want to apply, apply that to every little situation in everybody's life. And ultimately, yes, that's true. But the situation you're in right now, that may not turn out for good. Not in the immediate your loved one may in fact die. In fact, it's appointed for everyone to die. And so we kind of know that that's the end for all of us. You may be praying. Someone may come along and say, hey, all things work together for good for those who love God. Yeah, ultimately, in eternity, we're all going to be glorified. And all of God's purposes are going to be brought together in that moment in, in this amazing culmination of God's glory. But let's be honest, right now it might still suck. It's still going to be hard and people are going to die that you love. And sickness is going to ravage your body and you might lose your job. Aren't you glad you came to church today to get encouraged like this? But listen, this is the basis for our security and we sell people a bill of goods when we tell them accept Jesus and everything's going to be wonderful in their life, it might still be hard and there is suffering attached to the Christian life. Not everything works out the way we want it to in this life. 
Our security is in the fact that God has saved us and he will keep us and he will bring us to himself. And we have no need to be wondering about any of that. We are forever secure in him. And I'm telling you, that's a better benefit than anything he could ever offer me. Number nine. Jesus' advocacy instead of I can do this on my own. Now check this out, verse 31. For what shall we say then to these things? Another underlined part. Okay, Angelo, you too. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also bring with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised. Remember we said the whole gospel is predicated on the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us? Oh, wait a minute, I'm getting ahead of myself. Verse 34, we'll end right there. Jesus' advocacy instead of, I can do this on my own. This ridiculous assurance is based on the fact that it is the work of Jesus that saves us. It's God who justifies. And Jesus himself, verse 34, who intercedes for us. He's at the right hand of the throne of God, Hebrews says pleading on our behalf before the Father, advocating for us against the ongoing accusations of the devil. And some people, their plan is not to have Jesus advocate for themselves, but to be their own advocate, to be their own lawyer before the Lord. But you've heard the old maxim, right? Whoever defends themselves in court has a fool for a client. You got it? Okay, write it down and read it later. You'll get it later. All right. We can't advocate for ourselves. We can't be our own lawyers. We can't speak for ourselves before God. That's going to come up pretty empty for us. God, I did all these things. I was basically a good person. This was our whole gig in our family. We were a moral family. We were upstanding. We were good neighbors and dad had a good job and he provided well for our family. We had high moral standards. We had standards that most unbelievers wouldn't have. We had those in our family. But we weren't saved. We couldn't go to Jesus with all those things at the end of the age and say, hey, well, you know what? In our house, uh, these things were true. We were pretty moral compared to most people. We were, we were upstanding. Not enough. No amount of works or good things that we can do are ever going to be enough to gain us God's favor. We can't speak for ourselves. We can't be our own advocates. We need to get the benefit of having Jesus Christ represent us. Trust him as Lord and Savior of our lives. Trust him with our defense before the Father. Jesus Christ, I surrender my everything to you. I'm a sinner. I'm desperate. I have nothing to bring to the table. Would you speak to the Father on my behalf? He will. All you have to do is call in his name and ask him to represent you before the Father, to cleanse you of your sins, take that burden on himself. We need Jesus' advocacy because we can't do it on our own. And then finally, this, and so appropriate for the end you are loved. Instead of asking the question, who's going to love me? 
things people do to seek love. Everybody needs this. It's the reason why people have multiple sex partners and multiple relationships. And it's the reason why people will compromise maybe values they had around marriage and live together instead. There's so many ways that people are pursuing love. I just want someone to love me. We, we, we become overachievers so someone will notice and someone will say something so that we would have some understanding that someone cares about us. We look for it in all the wrong places. We look for love in human relationships first because it's tangible and it's wired into us from the beginning. But I don't want us to miss this at all. Seeking to fulfill the longing to be loved in human relationships will fail us. Ultimately, if we want our parents to be the perfect illustration of love to us, and that's our expectation, that will disappoint us all day long. If we think that our parents failed us, and therefore I'm going to go and find it in my future spouse, and I'm going to find someone who's going to be the perfect expression of love to me, that too will fail. If you think having children, maybe if we'll just have kids and I'll have the perfect, your kids will disappoint you. And even if all of those things, if you were raised in an amazing home, if you have an amazing marriage, if you have amazing kids, even in that scenario, it will still disappoint you and love will not be perfect. Because the longing we have to be loved has to come from our creator. The love that we're to receive has to come from him. It's ultimately a selfish thing to seek to be loved by anyone other than God. My parents should love me. My spouse should love me. My kids should love me. And we set up these expectations and we think they sound noble. These people should love me. And all things being equal and in a not sinful world, they would. But when we set that up as the standard and then there's failure, we walk away disappointed, crushed, devastated. And so we go somewhere else to find it. We're setting ourselves up for failure on the basis of expectation. If instead we have the expectation that only God is going to love me and no one else, then when I have the love of my parents or my spouse or my children, man, that's just bonus, that's blessing. That's just something God's heaping onto me. That I also do not deserve. I have to look for love. From him alone. And when I have that perfectly satisfying my life. Everything else is going to make sense to me. Everything else is going to fall into place. For me. Because God loves us. And the scriptures teach us that that is not in question. Take a look at these verses. See, once we're his children, nothing we do, no circumstance will change the fact of God's love. Listen to these verses that close this chapter. Who shall separate us from the love of God, the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, nothing will separate us from his love. And our weekly benediction that we close this service off with, beyond any pledge of love that I would have for you, and I do love you as your pastor, any pledge of love that you would have for each other in this church, when I say you are loved at the end of the service, please understand this, that it is an unalterable, unshakable, divine declaration. It's what God is saying to you through me. And ultimately, that's of way more value than any love I could ever please pledge to you. God loves you. And nothing will ever change that. It's the greatest benefit of all, isn't that? That he offers us his love. And in all of this, we're saying that this is the gospel received. The God longing satisfied. Our sin debt paid. The separation between us and God bridged. And all we have to do is believe in Jesus Christ. And we will have life. Let's pray together. Father, first, I would pray with gratitude on behalf of all of those in the room whose sin debt has been paid and who are fully experiencing life in you and the love, the unalterable, unshakable love of God in their lives. Thank you, Father, for freeing us from our sins and drawing us into your own family and adopting us as sons and daughters. God, for these things, we're so grateful. And I pray for us further as the followers of Christ who have all of these benefits, that we would live them out. And no doubt for some of us as the followers of Christ, some of these benefits are not being fully realized in our lives. And God, we would seek you for that. Help us to make the changes that we need to make in our life. To realize in full measure all 10 of these benefits. And then secondly, Lord, I would pray for those in the room who have not yet committed their life to Jesus Christ. Still holding on, still calling their own shots, still bearing their own sin, still looking for love in the wrong places. God, I pray that today would be the day when they would surrender their heart, surrender their life to Jesus Christ. God, they would take responsibility today for their own sin that today would be the day that they would believe in their heart that God has raised Jesus Christ from the dead and they would confess with their mouth today that he indeed is Lord of their lives. We thank you, Father, for this series. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.